Warning, this episode contains content that may be disturbing to some viewers. Viewer discretion is advised. Acts of revenge make for a great storyline, whether for a film or television show. However, revenge in the real world is typically a lot more gruesome. For Roy Allison Jr., it was just a fun night of partying with his two best friends. But for Roy Allison Sr., a father with a history of violent tendencies, it was an unforgivable act that deserved immense punishment. For Roy Jr.'s 28th birthday, Duncan Bell and Grant Maker came over to the home that Roy Jr. shared with his father. The three celebrated drinking, smoking, and later on, doing ecstasy. The next morning, Duncan came back to the house to find Roy Jr. dead, where he had passed out the night before. Roy Jr. and his father shared a tight bond after a divorce, so the pain Roy Sr. felt after losing his only son was gut-wrenching. Roy Sr. formed a seething rage and hatred for Duncan, whom he blamed for his son's death. A local newspaper and police station received a nine-page letter from Roy Sr. describing his heartbreak and rage, but by the time the police read the letter, it was far too late. Roy Sr. invited Duncan over to his home, knocked him unconscious, and stabbed him six times. Shortly after, Roy Sr. hanged himself in the crematorium where Roy Jr. was buried in hopes of being reunited with him. Duncan Bell's mother, Diane, has forgiven Roy Sr. for his violent act of revenge, stating he was a man that had lost his son. His world had disappeared. Akuyada was an infamous gangster in the slums of Kasturba-Nagur, a neighborhood in South Delhi. He was known for many cruel deeds in his lifetime, but none surpassed the sexual assaults he committed on 200 women in his town. Aku had the police on his payroll, so when women came to them for aid, they were ignored or officers took turns abusing them as well. Usha Narayane and her family were attacked by Aku and his men one afternoon in 2004. Aku and 40 of his men surrounded her house, threatening to disfigure her face with acid, assault, and kill her. Usha, not backing down, insulted the man and threatened to blow everyone up if he didn't leave, and eventually they left. While Aku was in court for other crimes, a mob of 200 women, led by Usha, broke down the barricade of the courtroom and rushed Aku. They threw chili powder in his face, stabbed him, and cut off his shortest extremity. Six women were accused of committing the murder of Aku, though all 200 claimed responsibility. They were all released due to lack of evidence, and the streets of Kasturbanagur are a lot safer thanks to a revenge plot against a monster. Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned, which is why Jeanne de Clisson set out to let King Philip VI know exactly how she felt about her husband's untimely execution. 
Jian's husband, Olier de Clisson, fought as a soldier in the Hundred Year War. He was captured by the enemy and held for ransom until King Philip VI paid for his release. However, when he returned home, the king believed him to be an English spy, so he had him beheaded in 1343 for so-called treason. Jeanne vowed to avenge him. She sold her land, using the money to raise an army and buy a fleet of ships known as the Black Fleet after she dyed the sails blood red. For years, she exacted revenge against the French. Each time she attacked, she spared only one person so they could tell the king she was still not backing down. The French nicknamed her the Lioness of Brittany because of her relentless violence. Jeanne sailed up and down the English Channel for 13 years, even after the death of her sworn enemy. Eventually, she met and fell in love with an English noble named Sir Walter Brentley, a lieutenant for King Edward III. After that, Jeanne de Clisson, the Lioness of Brittany, left the pirate life for good. The Holocaust is one of the most tragic events in human history, and survivors have gone on to tell their stories about life under Nazi rule. However, there is one story that isn't often told. Nakam, Hebrew for vengeance, was the name of a group of Jewish Holocaust survivors that sought retribution for the crimes committed by the Nazis. Though Nazis were held in prisoner of war camps by the U.S. military, some death camp survivors decided that wasn't enough. Ubba Kovner formed the first revenge group in 1945, and one night, over some drinks, they devised different attack plans. Plans A and B failed as they couldn't poison the water supply, and the arsenic-laced bread only made the imprisoned Nazis sick. But this didn't slow them down or hold them back, so they moved on to Plan C. Posing as police and military officials, the revenge group entered Nazis' homes and told them they were needed for questioning. Once they had the Nazi in the car, they either shot or suffocated them. In some cases, the Nazis were tied up in the back seat of the car and dynamite was ignited in the trunk. Some of the men in Nakam have gone to trial over the punishments they were doling out, but no judge ever had the heart to convict the survivors. After all, some would say it was fair and just retribution for those who aided in mass genocide. The Han Dynasty was ruthless, powerful, and intimidating, but in 40 AD, the Emperor To Din was challenged by a couple of sisters who had had enough. Vietnam was under merciless Chinese rule for over 200 years, always in a constant state of struggle and hardship. The Vietnamese sisters Trung Ni and Trung Tak grew up in a military household where their father taught them tactics of war and martial arts. Tak, the eldest sister, married a man named T. Sok, who made a stand against the Chinese and was executed for it. Tak took up the mantle of her husband and went to war against the Han Dynasty, teaching her people martial arts and inspiring them to stand up for themselves. Tak and Ni reclaimed 65 cities from the Chinese, battling several times over the span of a few years. But they were no match for the Chinese and were eventually defeated. As the legend goes, the Trung sisters died in the most honorable Vietnamese way by jumping to their deaths in a river. 
The Trung sisters' legacy is remembered in Vietnam through annual celebrations. Although the future traditions would restrict women in society, the Trung sisters have always been a banner of light that women can be just as mighty as a man. Buford Pusser was only 26 when he was elected Sheriff of McNary County in Tennessee. He was fully prepared to clean up crime lingering in his jurisdiction. But the criminals weren't about to let their territory go so easily. The Dixie Mafia and the State Line Mob were bad news for McNary County, partaking in illegal moonshine business, gambling, robbing, and occasional prostitution. On February 1st, 1966, Pusser went down to the Shamrock Hotel, run by Louise Hathcock, to look into a robbery. Louise, having been involved with the robbery, pulled a gun on Pusser, hoping to get rid of him. However, the sheriff shot back in defense, killing Louise. Pusser shut down the moonshine business and sent Louise's boyfriend, Carl Towhead White, to jail. While incarcerated, Towhead ordered a revenge assassination on Pusser. Early one morning, Pusser took a call about a disturbance and his wife, Pauline, decided to join him. During the drive, a car followed close behind and ambushed them down the road. The assailants came for Pusser, shooting him in the face, so he later needed reconstructive surgery. But Pauline died in the passenger seat from her injuries. In August of 1974, Buford Pusser was in a fatal car accident which left him dead at the scene. To this day, his daughter Dwana maintains that it was murder. Pierre Picot, a humble shoemaker in South France, was engaged to be married to a beautiful and rich woman when his friends decided to intervene. Lupien, Solari, and Chaubert falsely accuse Pierre of being an English spy, landing their dear friend in prison for seven years. While in prison, Pierre hoped that his lovely bride-to-be would be waiting for him upon his release, but he discovered that she was married to Lupien. Rage built inside of him, and Pierre sought revenge on the three men. Chaubert was the first to go, killed by a hired hand. Compliments of Pierre. Next, he convinced Lupien's daughter to marry a criminal and eventually had the man arrested, causing her to die of a nervous breakdown. Pierre then had Lupien's restaurant burned down, his son framed for theft and sent to jail, and finally stabbed Lupien to finish it off. Pierre had Solari poisoned, though it's unclear who committed the act exactly. A fourth friend named Alou was aware of the false imprisonment, but chose to keep Pierre's innocence silence. Alou, ridden with guilt on his deathbed, learned that not saying anything at all was just as bad as participating. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Bloody FM presents Hometown Ghost Stories, a paranormal podcast that investigates a new town every week, bringing you all the hauntings, from haunted houses to castles, bridges to asylums, wandering spirits to demons. Over 100 episodes covering different towns all over the world. Tune in to Hometown Ghost Stories live on YouTube every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern or on any podcast platform and find out if your hometown is haunted. The voice of Adolf Hitler reached far beyond the borders of Germany. As his message spread, more countries adopted the Nazi way. 
But with liberation of one of Romania's death camps in 1944 came a desire for revenge. Eliahu Itzkowitz, the youngest of four boys, watched his parents and all three brothers murdered at the hands of a man named Stanescu. He survived the concentration camp and emigrated to Israel where he joined the army as a paratrooper. Here he learned of Stanescu's whereabouts in a French Foreign Legion unit in Indochina. Eliahu deserted the Israeli army and enlisted in the French Foreign Legion, requesting placement in Stanescu's unit since they were old friends. There, the unit was ambushed by the Vietnamese, causing the group to split up. Eliahu and Stanescu hid together, and Eliahu's opportune moment finally came. He told Stanescu that he was one of the Jews from Romania, and emptied the clip of his gun into his family's killer. After being discharged from the French Foreign Legion, Eliahu was arrested for his desertion and served one year in prison, leading everyone to believe Stanescu was gunned down by enemy fire. The Iceni tribe residing in Britain in 47 CE was led by King Prasutagus. As the Romans conquered city after city, King Prasutagus kept peace with them and continued ruling his people with no Roman interjection. King Prasutagus hoped his daughters would keep the peace after he died, but after his passing, Rome advanced on the Iceni tribe, enslaving them and pillaging the kingdom. Both Roman officers and slaves took what they wanted from the tribe and had Prasutagus' wife, Boudica, stripped and flogged and his daughters sexually violated. Boudica stood her ground and became the tribe's leader, taking her people into war against Rome, toppling three cities and eliminating over 80,000 Roman citizens. However, the Romans eventually got the best of her, cornering the Iceni tribe in a field. Boudica and her daughters fought valiantly until they couldn't any longer. They escaped the battle and went into hiding, poisoning themselves to escape the Romans one final time. After conquering most of China, Genghis Khan reached out to befriend the Sultan of the Khwarezmian Empire in Persia. But instead of gaining a neighbor, Sultan Shah Allah ad-Din Muhammad gained an enemy instead. In the 13th century, the Mongols were not widely known outside of China. So when Genghis sent Muhammad a caravan of goods and over 400 well-wishers, Muhammad's uncle accused them of being spies. Muhammad had all the men killed aside from one who sent word back to Genghis. Assuming the man had just made a simple mistake, the Khan sent three of his best ambassadors to clear things up, but again his friendship was not accepted and one of the ambassadors was killed. At this point, Genghis Khan saw there would be no common ground with Muhammad and he moved in to attack the Khwarezmian Empire. Muhammad escaped the Mongols, eventually trading his royal garb in for beggar's clothes to hide and dying alone on an island far from home. But his uncle was captured and had molten silver poured into his eyes and ears. Frank Eaton was just a boy when his father was brutally murdered. Frank was born in 1860 in Hartford, Connecticut to a father who was a vigilante. 
At the age of eight, he witnessed as his father was gunned down by a group of six former Confederate soldiers who rode with a group that referred to themselves as Regulators. He was devastated by the death of his father and immediately developed a relentless hatred for his killers. Not long after the murder, a good friend of Frank's father approached Frank and urged him to take revenge on behalf of his father. He said, My boy, may an old man's curse rest upon you if you do not try to avenge your father. The man even went as far as to give Frank his own gun and trained him on how to use it. By the age of 15, Frank had become an impressive shooter. He visited Fort Gibson in Oklahoma to learn how to better handle a gun. Though he was too young to join the army, he did go shooting with some of the soldiers there. Everyone was shocked by Frank's ability. He outshot soldier after soldier. Eventually, the cavalry's best marksmen went up against Frank, and each one of them tasted defeat. Frank's skill surpassed their own at every turn. The fort's commanding officer approached Frank and bestowed upon him a marksmanship badge and a new nickname, which he kept throughout his life, Pistol Pete. Pistol Pete was said to have had a faster draw than even the famous Buffalo Bill. And by the age of 17, he became one of the youngest U.S. Marshals in history. Now with skill and authority, Frank took to avenge his father. One by one, he tracked down the men that had been there that day, and one by one, he gunned them down with unparalleled ability and ferocity. Only one of the regulators managed to escape Pistol Pete's wrath, and that was only because he was killed before Frank could get to him. Frank lived a long life, eventually becoming an author until he passed away in 1958 at the age of 97. The dentist. While most of us are afraid of them, we don't often consider them to be badasses. But for one dentist in particular, this was exactly the case. Born in Wisconsin in 1914, Ben Salomon lived a dedicated life. He became an Eagle Scout and attended a dental university. After graduating in 1937, he opened his own practice. Life was good for Ben as he walked a successful path. In 1940, however, things changed for him. He was drafted into World War II, but that didn't stop him from living successfully. Ben was assigned to the Army Dental Corps, where he put his skills to good use for the dental care of the soldiers. In 1944, in this capacity, he was promoted to captain. Ben was fortunate to be able to do what he loved and avoid combat. However, he couldn't avoid it forever. Ben met with his first combat experience when he was sent to Saipan. With little dental work to perform while soldiers battled, he offered to replace a wounded surgeon. Ben knew that this new position would put him in harm's way, but he went willingly anyway. Danger did eventually catch up with Ben when Japanese troops surrounded his aid station. Four Japanese soldiers infiltrated Ben's tent and one of them killed one of the soldiers he had just saved. Infuriated and switched into survival mode, Ben took down each soldier. The last one he headbutted into submission. In order to provide the wounded with a way to escape, he took up a machine gun and began firing off into the swarms of troops heading his way. Japanese soldiers fired back, barely able to fight off the dentist's assault. Ben fought to his death so that others could live. When his body was found, he was slumped over his machine gun 
and 98 dead Japanese soldiers were piled in front of him. It was revealed that Ben had been shot 76 times and bayoneted over two dozen times before he stopped shooting. And for this, he became one of only three dentists to ever receive the Medal of Honor. Olga and Igor were proud rulers. They ruled the former federation of East Slavic tribes known as the Kievan Rus. Igor one day ventured into a nearby tribe to collect tribute. Tributes were often exacted as a way to show respect or allegiance. But this casual occurrence took a poor turn when the tribe Igor was collecting from had a sudden idea. In order for their tribe to take control of the state, they would need to put their own prince in the throne. Igor's wife Olga was much too occupied with their current marriage, so in order to fix this small problem, the tribe assassinated Igor and left Princess Olga a widow. Olga, now unwed and alone, was seen as weak and even a pushover, and the tribe took advantage of this. Following through with their ingenious plan, they began to pressure Olga to marry their prince, Prince Mal. Olga, infuriated not only by the murder of her husband, but by the incessant nagging by the tribe that killed him, played it very cool. She sent word that she was open to the idea of remarriage and requested that the tribe send its nobles over by boat. She said they could remain in their boat overnight and she would send servants to them in the morning where they and their boat would be carried into the city and honored by Olga herself once they arrived. They took her up on her proposal and spent the initial night in the boat. But Olga had other plans in mind for the 20 nobles. While the nobles slept in their boat, Olga had her servants dig a tremendous hole. Once morning came, the servants did as Olga promised. They retrieved the boat, carried it into the city, only to be dumped with all the nobles aboard into the giant hole. The nobles screamed, begged, and pleaded for their lives as Olga then, with a smile on her face, ordered the hole to be filled in burying them all alive. But Olga's vengeance was far from over. Olga sent word to the tribe once more, claiming that if they truly wanted her to marry their prince, they would need to send a group of distinguished nobles to escort her personally to the prince himself. Anything less would be considered a great offense. Thinking that this was their moment to secure the throne, the tribe agreed and sent more nobles into Olga's clutches. When they arrived, Olga insisted that the men wash themselves off as they were dirty from traveling. A bath hut had been warmed and prepared for them, and the noblemen obliged eagerly. Once inside, the men realized that the exits had been sealed and the hut set on fire. All of the men burned alive inside. But Olga was not finished yet. She went on to hold a memorial event for her husband where she invited people of her targeted tribe. 5,000 of them showed up to the event and all 5,000 of them died when Olga ordered her soldiers to mercilessly slaughter them once they had all arrived. Olga had blood on her hands, more blood than would suffice for the loss of a loved one, perhaps. But it wasn't enough. Eventually, Olga led an all-out assault on the tribe's city, but for the first time failed in her mission to kill them. Their numbers were too great and they remained resilient to her advances. However, she was still greatly feared by this point. Olga, in a brief moment of mercy, offered to leave the tribe be. 
as long as they paid tribute. However, her assault had left them with little to offer, so she claimed that she would take payment in the form of birds, doves and sparrows specifically. Every home would need to offer some. The tribe, willing to do anything to send Olga away, collected doves and sparrows in great multitudes from around their city and brought them to Olga. She then ordered all of the tribe's people to return to their homes and rest for the night. Olga then put her soldiers to work. Wood was burned in great quantities and smoldering pieces were attached to the birds. Once they were properly fixed, the birds were released to return back to their nests within the city. Doing so resulted in the entire city engulfing into flames, burning alive countless people. Those who managed to escape the flames were slaughtered by Olga's men or imprisoned and forced into slavery for the rest of their days. It was only then that Olga released the tribe of their debt for killing her husband. Olga went on to rule unchecked for the rest of her life. For some, punishment only fits the crime when everyone involved is dead. That's all for now. Remember, you may not believe it, but anything is possible in a world so seriously strange. Thank you for listening. Be sure to follow the Seriously Strange podcast so you don't miss what we've got in store for you. Watch the shadows and stay alive out there. Thanks to all of you for your support. The Seriously Strange podcast is made possible due in part to contributions made by our listeners like you. So if you would like to keep the Seriously Strange podcast online and accessible, please consider pressing the link that says support the show in the description of any podcast episode. You can then choose your preferred way to donate and send a contribution our way because we can't do this without our listeners support. If you decide to contribute, it's tremendously appreciated and we thank you so much. We read every single message included with each contribution, so feel free to include your comments or even make a request for a future topic. Thanks for listening. We've got a lot more in store for you. Take care and enjoy your next episode.